Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Chuck Haddix joins Nate to discuss his book, Kansas City Jazz, From Ragtime to Bebop, A History. Nate and Chuck talk about the corrupt Kansas City machine and how the vice it fostered produced great American music from ragtime to bebop, Count Basie to Charlie Parker. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Chuck Haddix, co-author of Kansas City Jazz, From Ragtime to Bebop, A History. Chuck, welcome to the show. Well, good to be here with you, Nate. And so this book is a real treat, and, and one of the fascinations of the show is the emergence of regional scenes, and Kansas City Jazz is possibly one of the, the definitive 20th century American musical scenes. Tell us why Kansas City Jazz is so memorable and important. Well, Kansas City Jazz uh, was developed very quickly uh, from ragtime to bebop in a 20-year period of time between 1940 and 1920. Uh, the, in 1920, James Scott composed Don't Jazz Me Rag um, music, and by 1940, Charlie Parker was playing bebop in, in Kansas City. The older, older musicians called it crazy music at that time, but so it evolved very quickly. And also, Kansas City went on to contribute to the, the birth of rock and roll with, with Big Joe Turner. Also, swing music came out of Kansas City with Count Basie and the territorial bands. So Kansas City made a major contribution to the development of American music and influenced inter, musicians internationally. And what was it about the circumstances of Kansas City that made it such a hotbed for music? Because, to be frank, it hasn't been since the, the 40s, and it really wasn't a cultural center you know, in the 19th century. What was it about the first half of the 20th century that made Kansas City such a mecca for music? Well, like Kansas, like other other uh, cities around the country, Kansas City was run by a uh, political machine headed up by Boss Pendergast. Most cities operated that way in those days, and uh, Tom Pendergast fostered vice and corruption that led to the opening of hundreds of clubs and ballrooms in Kansas City, and that provided work for musicians. And then during the Great Depression. Uh, musicians from the southwestern territories came to Kansas City where work was plentiful. Uh, musicians like Andy Kirk and the Blue Devil, and, and Andy Kirk and the Clouds of Joy, and also the Blue Devils, led by Walter Page, came to Kansas City too from the territories. So it this corruption fostered an environment that provided music for musicians. And plus, Kansas City was the first stop outside of the Deep South. And while there was Jim Crow laws here, it wasn't nearly as severe as the South. So, And Kansas City was a railroad hub, so musicians or anybody going east, west, north, or south passed through Kansas City. And a lot of musicians stopped at 18th and Vine and uh, liked what they saw and stayed here. And also, it's centrally located, so bands could tour all across the Midwest. 
So there were a lot of uh, things going for Kansas City at that time during the 1920s, 1930s. And tell us a little bit about the 18th and Vine intersection and why that was so important for African-American citizens of Kansas City. Well, 18th and Vine during the the age of segregation was the heart and soul of the African-American community and provided them with all of the services uh, and, and goods that they were denied downtown. They couldn't go say, for example, to uh, Macy's or any uh, every birthday or try on clothes, or even, they were there, actually couldn't eat there. So they created their own little community that really mirrored can- the greater Kansas City. There were clubs there. There was gambling. Uh, and everything that, that 12th Street and, and Kansas City offered, only it was, it was for the African-American community. Um, and it grew very quickly uh, to become really a major metropolitan center uh, connected to Harlem, similar to what Harlem was like or the south side of Chicago. Most cities had an African-American section, but the uh, the 18th and Vine was very vibrant and uh, and contained all the businesses that they were denied downtown. And the book officially it, covers ragtime to bebop, but there's one figure that predates ragtime that I just wanted to get a quick mention in, and that's John William Blind Boone. And the thing that caught my eye reading about him in the book was that he wrote uh, some music that's the first time the walking bass pattern appears in sheet music. Tell us a little bit about Blind Boone and how that walking bass pattern kind of continues to be important throughout the history of Kansas City Jazz. Well, John Lang, Blind Boone's manager, lived in Kansas City. And, of course, uh, Boone came up in, in Carthage in Columbia, and it was associated with that area. Um, you know, his his mother was a, was, a, was a slave. His father was a, a former slave. Brother. His father was a, a German bugler during the, Civil, during the Civil War. And he was... Um, he had a brain, what they call a brain fever. And so this doctor surgically removed his eyes and he felt that it enhanced his hearing. And he was a, he was a, a, a prodigy, a child prodigy. And he was known for his concert concerts. He was a concert pianist that played classical music, camp songs, and spirituals, but occasionally he'd do what he called put the cookies on the lower shelf where everybody get to them and play ragtime. And his music is very much influenced by Missouri folk forms. And he uh, his strains his, uh, from the flat branch uh, is, is a really a masterpiece in ragtime, and he's pre-ragtime actually. Uh, he's one of the founders of the tradition, and he developed the walking bass line. Uh, and Walter Page picked up on that because Walter would see him in town, and he translated that into a, a jazz vernacular. And so he created the walking bass line playing a straight line where the soloist always knew where they could come back in. Yeah, and that walking bass line, I mean, to me, obviously Count Basie is a major importance as an American musical figure just as Count Basie because, you know, one of the most important artists of the swing era and, you know, great both critically and popular acclaim 
the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But Walter Page's Walking Bass is is one of those things that goes on beyond jazz and and is a linchpin of rhythm and blues and rock and roll. So I wanted to get that in there. And and Blind Boons, I'm just fascinated with the idea that we can track the Walking Bass to a particular creator. And I wanted to give Blind Boon a shout out for having at least been the first to put it in a published song. Well, you know, we've got to give we have to give Walter Page a great deal of credit too because. He was really a pioneer in the string bass. He was playing a string bass when he was attending uh, Lincoln High School and studying with Major N. Clark Smith. This is where the real change comes in with Kansas City. There's four cradles of jazz. Uh, Jazz is born in New Orleans, travels by train up to Chicago, and then comes of age in Kansas City and New York. What made Kansas City sound different is... Kansas City developed along original lines because it was geographically isolated. And it's because of the walking bass and the string and the use of the string bass. Other jazz capitals used tubas in the rhythm section instead of a string bass. A tuba plays a two-four rhythm. With a string bass, Walter Page could lay down four strong beats and and go to a four-four rhythm. So it developed a whole different style. So one figure that caught my attention reading the book was um, John William Blind Boone. And the thing that caught my attention was that he's credited with being the first person to put a walking bass line into a piece of sheet music. Tell us a little bit about Blind Boone and his innovation. Well, Blind Boone was a a pre-ragtime composer. He was known to be a – he was a – hold on a second. Let me start again. Uh, Blaine Boone developed a walking bass line. Boone, who was from southern Missouri, was a concert pianist known for his uh, renditions of classical pieces as well as uh, camp songs and spirituals. But occasionally he would put the cookies on the bottom shelf where everybody could get to them and play ragtime uh, based upon Missouri folk forms. His uh, strains from Flat Band Branch, and particularly Carrie's Gone to Kansas City, are classics in the Ragtime Songbook. And he inspired a whole generation of, of piano professors that would follow, like James Scott, Scott Joplin. They all knew Blind Boone. He was a big star before there was Ragtime. And he developed the walking bass line. And he often played Kansas City, and he would. Uh, his manager, John Lang, lived in Kansas City, so he would come through here and play at churches and concert halls. And young uh, Walter Page, who was a pioneer in the string bass, picked up on the walking bass line and incorporated that into the vernacular of Kansas City music, particularly swing. And this allowed the uh, uh, the switch from a 2-4 rhythm to a 4-4 rhythm, which is one of the distinguishing characteristics of Kansas City jazz style. And they were locked into the 2-4 time because of the tuba and the limitations of the human breath. And then once they switched to a bass with the strings, the 4-4 opened up. Yeah, common, commonly uh, before Walter Page came along, and none of the East Coast bands had string bass players. No, no one in Chicago was playing string bass. Um, but 
But before uh, th- that came along, uh, th- you had a rhythm section were dominated by tubas, which could only play a two-four rhythm. With a, with a string bass, you can play a four-four rhythm, and that became the signature of Kansas City jazz. All the great compositions are, of course, based on the blues, but they're in four-four rhythm. And then that four-four time carries through uh, into jump blues and rhythm and blues and rock and roll, and and is a staple of American mm. music going forward. Yeah, that, that, but Go ahead. No, that's correct. That's that's exactly right. Um, of course, rock and roll comes out of Kansas City too, with Big Joe Turner uh, and Jesse Stone. They were, according to Jesse Stone, they were rock and rolling down on 12th Street in the 1930s. And you also had swing music coming out of Kansas City, a different kind of swing music. Of course, the swing era comes along with Benny Goodman in 1935, but. Benny Moten was already recording swing composition. Moten's swing was recorded in 1932, and it contains all of the elements that would later distinguish swing, uh, the, the use of riffs, contrasting riffs, a 4-4 rhythm, an easy swing, uh, outstanding soloists, and a real feel for the blues. And it was, it was dance music. So swing music also comes out of Kansas City. Yeah, and swing is probably the era in which Kansas City music made the biggest impact on the national stage uh, through the form of Count Basie. But before we get into Count Basie and the swing era, I want to backtrack just a little bit and go back to the ragtime era proper. Blind Boone was a precursor of ragtime, although he, he also was active in the ragtime era. But Kansas City becomes a real... A centerpiece, a hub for American ragtime, because Scott Joplin publishes his first rag there with a guy named Carl Hoffman. Tell us a little bit about ragtime and the Kansas City music publishing industry and how that played a role. Well, Kansas City uh, was, of course, uh, a, a music publishing capital in the Midwest. Uh, because of the Kansas City was a railroad hub, so all of the traveling vaudeville shows would come through Kansas City. And there were a, a number of theaters in Kansas City too, and see Kansas City is really the metropolitan metropolis of the, the Midwest, uh, and so you know there's no real big towns around. So Kansas City fostered a lot of theaters downtown, and they they featured live music, and so the musicians had to have a place where they could go buy music and instruments. So. Uh, that that led to the uh, opening of a number of music stores, including Jenkins Music, uh, Carl Hoffman, uh, the Kansas City Talking Machine Company. And so since there was publishing houses in Kansas City, ragtime composers and professors from all around the Midwest came to Kansas City where they could get their music published. James Scott, for example, uh, Scott Joplin. So there's a whole tradition of ragtime publishing here in Kansas City. Incidentally, Carl Hoffman really didn't have anything to do with, um, with the composition of original rags. And um, they put his name on it because he had published a number of popular songs and rags that were big hits in Kansas City. They thought it would help sell sheet music. Well, Scott Joplin wasn't really happy when he saw it was arranged by by Carl Hoffman, and also because of the racist nature of the cover and old African-American picking rags. Uh, so Scott Joplin went to uh, Stark Music, and they published his really big hits. That was, a, that was something that they, they missed out on here in Kansas City. 
But they did have one of the three, big three uh, of ragtime, and that was James Scott, whose best-known piece is like Kansas City Rag, and one in particular called Don't Jazz Me Rag that were published in Kansas City. That's correct. Uh, and there was also Uday Bowman, who published 12th Street Rag, which later went on to become one of the most popular rags of all time. And he sold the rights to Jenkins Music and then did actually reclaimed his uh, his his royalties years later. For a long time, it was thought that he was an African-American, but he was actually a white guy. He came up from Fort Worth, Texas, and he had self-published 12th Street Rag down there. And then Jenkins published it, and he bought, they bought the rights to it. He, he composed this interesting story. He was standing on, on 12th Street, and 12th Street was lined by pawn shops, and they had the three-ball cluster in front of them. And his friend Raggedy Andy, I think his name was, was going to open a pawn shop. And he said, well, if he's going to open a pawn shop and get rich, I'm going to compose a uh, rag with a three-over-four pattern. And it became a classic, and then remains uh, you know, a classic today. And also... A, a dotted version of it was published by Jenkins Music, and that was picked up on and recorded by Benny Moten Orchestra. So it kind of inspired the development of jazz in Kansas City, too. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. Let's hear Benny Moten's version of Uday Bowman's 12th Street Rag. Benny Moten's version of Uday Bowman's 12th Street Rag, and that's the 1920s era of recording. Tell us a little bit about Benny Moten and the emergence of what they call the territorial bands in the 20s. Well, Benny, Benny Moten was really the father of Kansas City jazz. Ironically, he was a, um, a better businessman than, than pianist. Uh, more often than not, you see him working the door. That's, that's what gave Basie his, his, his entree into the band a little bit later on. Um, Benny Moten was a Kansas City native. Uh, he attended Lincoln, left early, uh, played in the joints down on, around 18th Street and then on 12th Street. And then in 1920, he formed the, the BB&D group uh, with Dude Langford and Bailey Hancock. It was a trio. And this is the, one of the first Kansas City jazz bands. And they, they actually played early, early kind of hybrid ragtime. Privately, they referred to themselves as big, black, and dirty. And there, he, he, he inspired, his success inspired other band leaders to start up like George E. Lee, which is his main competitor. But once established, uh, he played, uh, uh, once established, he, he, his band steadily grew. And it was the first Kansas City band, jazz band, to record recorded with Ada Brown, a song called Evil Mama Blues, but also some instrumentals, Ele Elephant Wobble, Crowdad Blues, uh, were were recorded in 1923 for the OK label produced by Ralph Peer. And Peer, he was uh, from Independence, Missouri, and worked in the record industry here in Kansas City before he went to work for OK. 
And as a as an A and R man, an artist and repertoire man for A for for OK, he recorded uh, Mamie Smith, uh, the first blues by Mamie Smith, and also the first country record by Fiddle and John Carson. And he had a long association with with Benny Moten. Uh, including recordings for the LK label and also for the Victor label. Moten was really the architect of Kansas City style. And the music, his music evolved very quickly, too. If you listen to Crawdad Blues and these early kind of crude recordings for the OK label in 23, they're worlds away from Moten Swing, which was recorded in 1932. That's a very short period of time to go from basically an early rag influenced style of jazz to a hard swinging style that would really uh, was a precursor to the swing era. The swing era didn't come along for three more years. So Benny Moten was, and also Benny Moten was a good businessman. He was a good businessman, as I mentioned earlier. He also was a Commonwealth band. And the, uh, he would, uh, distribute the money, divide the money evenly among the musicians and distribute to the musicians and give checks for like $5,000 after they uh, had toured the East Coast. So he paid his band members very well. And that inspired loyalty in the band. Um, however, it was also something that really kind of undercut the quality of the band because a lot of the early musicians in the band, like Harlan Leonard and Damon Hayes, they weren't necessarily the greatest musicians, but he kept them out of loyalty. And later it would cause rifts in the band when he would begin bringing in soloists from the territorial band tradition. And he was actually, he and Lee were territorial bands. Now, territorial bands came out of the Southwest during the 1920s. There were a lot of small towns scattered across the West, and the bands could not support themselves by playing in just these small towns, so they would travel from town to town, and they staked out the Western United States in these vast territories. And in order to um, play in another band leader's territory, you'd have to have that leader's uh, permission. And there, there are hundreds of bands across, crisscrossing the territories, going as far as to California. Uh, Alfonso Trent's band, uh, the legendary Blue Devils, and they had a, they developed a tradition of arranging and also outstanding soloists because of the vast territory they covered. It was a, it was a pretty broad musical landscape in Oklahoma, and they'd they'd have to play hoedown music or, or country influenced style music. Up north, they'd have to play. Uh, and play uh, uh, for these, uh, these people who migrated from Scandinavia. They want polkas, and, and in Kansas City and New Orleans, they want electric music hot. They want jazz. So they developed multiple books of arrangements for different regions, and that that fostered a tradition of arranging. Eddie Durham came out of that tradition, and that's what really what Moten lacked. And so when they played Kansas City, Moten would check them out and recruit um, band members from the territorial tradition. Uh, and, and also, during the Great Depression, drove musicians from the Southwest to Kansas City where work was plentiful. Uh, Mary Lou Williams uh, arrived with Andy Kirk in 1929. And she marveled that there were, there were 50 clubs between 12th and 18th Street featuring live music in a six-block area. So there was lots of work for these territorial bands and, and members of the territories bands. Uh, so they came to Kansas City. 
and that very much influenced it. Moten and Lee both uh, absorbed the, the best players and the best arrangers from that tradition to uh, perfect their sound and to develop this new style of music. So there's a symbiotic relationship between the territorial bands, Georgie Lee and Benny Moten. And he purchased a lot of talent from Walter Page's Blue Devils and ultimately absorbed Page himself and Count Basie from there. But I want to talk about the connection with New York. You talk about how Kansas City was sort of isolated away from Chicago, partly due to union rules. So you didn't talk about that, but you talk about that in the book. But there was a much more active cross-pollinization between New York and Kansas City than Kansas City and Chicago mm-hmm. because you had people like Duke Ellington coming to Kansas City on tour blowing away the local bands with his slickly arranged pieces. Fletcher Henderson did the same. And then people like Benny Moten actually go to New York and are pretty successful. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there was a string of, of vaude, a, the Theater Owners Booking Association was a string of movie theaters and, uh, and concert halls stretched from Harlem to Kansas City, and then it was Kansas City was a turnaround point, and then it would go back to some 80, 80 theaters in that circuit. And so Fletcher Henderson and Duke Ellington came to Kansas City. Fletcher came before Duke. And this was a revelation for Benny Moten because, you know, these are very polished bands that are very highly arranged. Uh, they're using riffs, but in a more restrained manner. And so they inspired... Moten particularly to expand his band to full size uh, to 12 pieces and they also inspired him to polish his style Uh, and Fletcher Henderson was uh, you know he was uh, a lot of city bands benefited from Fletcher Henderson's help for example um, when he played a battle of the band against Andy Kirk uh, in 19 I believe it was 1929 uh, he invited Kirk to go to Roseland Ballroom and play in Roseland at Roseland Ballroom in New York City, which was the ballroom in Kansas and in, in the country, the most popular, the biggest and most popular ballroom. So he gave them a leg up when Count Basie was headed east and didn't have time to develop his own original book for 12 pieces and was relying upon uh, the, the head arrangements for a nine piece man. It was Fletcher Henderson that loaned him arrangements to get him to New York City. And New York City was the destination for uh, for Kansas City bands and Kansas City musicians that really wanted to make it big. They would go to New York City. And that was Moten's goal. When he passed in 1935, he was preparing the band to go to Kansas City. And, and I, I believe he was, he was intending on moving the headquarters. Excuse me, go to New York and, and move the headquarters to New York. Uh, so, you know, that was always the destination. And Ellington, of course, had a very distinctive, his own distinctive style. And he, uh, you know, very much influenced the Kansas City bands, too, for his, his trips to Kansas City. You know, you got to consider, uh, he really didn't tour much until the 1930s. He pretty much stayed in New York. But Kansas City audiences were familiar with him because uh, they could buy his records at Winston Holmes Music Company. And so his records were here, but the band hadn't played here. But when, and when he made his debut here, everybody showed up to see Ellington. And they'd also read about him in, in The Call and other African-American newspapers. Uh, you know, so they, they very much influenced uh, uh, Kansas City style and, and really were the catalyst for the bands going 
back east, and and you know, they they really helped them along. It was very much a symbiotic relationship between New York bands and Kansas City, more so than Chicago because of, of the union rules. Uh, Chicago systematically kept Kansas City musicians out of the scene there, uh, and New Orleans, of course, was all over after Storyville. So these were the two hot spots, and there was very much a relationship between the two cities. And Moten had uh, an interesting relationship with his protege, Count Basie, and also Walter Page, who he had absorbed from Walter Page's Blue Devils. And at one point, Basie even pulls a coup and takes over the band, but can't keep it running. And they basically all end up crawling back to Moten, who then tragically dies in a tonsillectomy. And this thing with tonsillectomies, I just got to bring it up because I talked to Gary Giddens about being Crosby. And of course, we talk about the great Eddie Lang, Bing's best friend and guitar player, who dies in a botched tonsillectomy. And so hearing that Benny Moten had died uh, in a botched tonsillectomy, um, it's like, what is it with 1930s musicians? And then the first uh, promising Kansas City jazz player who was a white saxophonist also died uh, from tonsillitis. So there's something going on in people's throats, and I just had to <laughs> throw that out there. I don't know if that has any significance. But when Basie takes the band over, again, after Mutton's death, actually Mutton's son takes over the band and can't run it, and Basie sort of rebuilds playing in one of the bordellos uh, in the gnarliest part of uh, the 18th and Vine area. But he comes to the attention of some big players in the music business and a guy named Dave Dexter, who is known to listeners of this show as the villain at Capitol Records in the Beatles story, the guy who wouldn't release the Beatles records until 1964 in America. And when he does, he puts fake stereo on him and, and changes the records. But he's a hero in this story because he helps discover Count Basie and is a He's a young journalist at this point and brings Basie to the attention of John Hammond, who brings him to the attention of the world. Well, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Dexter was the champion of Kansas City Jazz, and he used his, he was, a, he was an editor for Downbeat Magazine in the 1930s, and, and he also wrote for Metronome before he became an editor for, uh, for Downbeat, and he was the one that championed Kansas City music, Um he was. He wrote about uh, the first one to write about the Basie Band at the Reno Club. He hated the Reno Club. Uh, he called it the worst dive in town, and he uh, <laughs> and he he dug the the Basie Band. And he used his contacts with in Downbeat, but when he was in Kansas City and when he was in uh, Chicago to promote the bands, particularly the Basie Band. And in this July nineteen thirty five. Uh, article in, in in Downbeat, he goads John Hammond to come into town to check out the um, the Basie Band at the Reno Club, and Joe Glazer also picked up on it and came to town too. So Hammond came to town and quote discovered the Basie Band at, at Dexter's urging, and I think that Dexter and, and Hammond conspired and let Hammond discover and really promote the Basie band because, you know, Dexter would have perceived it as being boosterism for him to do so because he was from Kansas city and so associated with Basie. Uh, and he, um, you know, was very powerful. There were, there were only metronome and, and downbeat were the main music magazines at that time. 
And he could make or break careers. And he promoted Harlan Leonard. He promoted Jay McShann. He didn't like Charlie Parker because uh, Parker allegedly gave him a hot foot in Kansas City, put a match underneath his, between his, the sole of his shoe and his, his leather and <laughs> lit it when Dexter was sleeping. And, uh, but he was the one that really brought Kansas City to the national forefront. And he was a one-man downbeat. Um, he was Bobby Black and other contributors. He wrote under pseudonyms to make it look like they had a lot of contributors, but it's all Dave Dexter. And so he was the one that really promoted it. And Basie was Basie was not a reliable narrator. If you read his biography, he talks about how, well, you know, we were at the Cherry Blossom and some people didn't want to go to the Harlem Club and all that stuff, you know, and I went along with it. When actually he led the charge of kicking Moten out of his own band. And then he failed as a band leader. And then, then he... Um, came back to Kansas City, went to Little Rock, Arkansas, and came back to Kansas City and rejoined the, the Moton band. And to Moton's credit, Moton took him back in. Uh, you know, he didn't have to. Uh, so, and then when, of course, Moton died, Basie went into the Reno Club and then recruited former members of the Moton band and former members of the Blue Devils to form his first great band, that nine-piece band at the Reno Club that, quote, John Hammond discovered. Of course, radio played a key role in promoting Kansas City Jazz, too, because you had W9XBY, which was an experimental AM station that broadcast at twice the bandwidth as most AM stations. You could be heard all around the Midwest. And so people were very much aware of the Basie Band. Uh, when Jay McShann comes to town in 36, he has right to the Reno Club because he, he wants to see the Basie Band, but the Basie Band had already moved on. And let's so hear all that those factors base. come together and to 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 promote Kansas City Jazz in the 30s. And let's hear a little bit about that from that Basie band. I want to hear um, "Jumping at the Woodside" from Count Basie. Jumping at the Woodside by the Count Basie Band, and all the elements of swing are there, and it's just a kick and track. You got Freddie Green on guitar, Lester Young, the great soloist, um, and this is the band that that leaves Kansas City, frankly, and and conquers New York and conquers the world. But meanwhile, his rivals are also having success. I want to talk a little bit about Andy Kirk and the Twelve Clouds of Joy, and their first success on record. They worked with Jack Cap, who's famous uh, Decca for producing Bing Crosby and saving the record industry during the Depression. But he had to be talked into letting Andy Kirk record a ballad. And once he's successful with this ballad, he won't let him record anything else. Yeah, Andy Kirk's an interesting uh, interesting band leader. Uh, of course, he played tuba. He didn't, unlike Georgie Lee, he didn't like to front the band. Um, he had a band that was played sweet and swinging. You know, it was it was not a hard driving swing band like like Count Basie's. He played white venues uh, in Oklahoma, and also he came to Playmore in 1929, July of 1929. Uh, so he was playing for white dancers, and that 
that kind of informed his music. Moten played for White Dancer, but El Moten also played at Paseo Hall regularly. And he records, uh, Kirk Band recorded 1929 for the Brunswick label, that, that legendary November session. And then the Great Depression comes along, and the band doesn't record again until 1936. And they were playing at Fairyland Park, which was one of Kansas City's main venues. They had a, a they had a, a big uh, open air pavilion, the dance pavilion there, and it, it was it was a great gig for Kansas City bands because they play there every night. <laughs> they didn't have to set up. And during the summer, when a lot of the clubs would close up because of the heat, you could play Fairyland Park. So that spring, he toured uh, to New York and recorded a number of sessions for the Decca label. And he wanted to record um, this ballad called Until the Real Thing Comes Along, also known in Kansas City as a slave song. And Jack Cap wanted him to record swing music because swing was a thing at the time. And finally, he, he agreed to record Until the Real Thing Comes Along, and it was released while Kirk was playing at Fairyland Park. And he honors his obligation to play there this summer, and then he was gone. He never looked back to Kansas City after that. And that was the big hit that established the, the band nationally. And, you know, while the bands all wanted to go to New York City, but they also wanted to record a hit song that would establish them nationally. For uh, Basie, it was One O'Clock Jump. For Kirk, it was Until the Real Thing Comes Along. For Jay McShann, it was uh, 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 Hootie Blues, or Confessing the Blues, or rather, with, with Hootie Blues as the flip side, featured Charlie Parker's first commercially recorded solo. So that was the goal of the bands, and that was the connection, was to record a hit record and to establish the band nationally. And, and, and that established Kirk nationally, and he um, uh, was very popular. On popular, I mean, it sold over 500,000 copies. The Harlan Leonard... Was, was one of the more interesting band leaders to come out of Kansas City. He wasn't a great soloist. Uh, he wasn't really a great band leader either, unfortunately. But he was a uh, – he recorded for the Bluebird label, and he recorded a song called I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire. And he recorded it up-tempo, and Myra Taylor is featured on vocals. He recorded it as an up-tempo song when it was written to be a ballad, and that – Eluded, that eluded him. The hit, big hit eluded him because of that. And the Ink Spots would cover it, and they'd have a really big hit with it. So, you know, Jay McShane got established nationally because he had a hit record, and that eluded Harlan Leonard, and he went to the West Coast and just kind of petered out. So and Harlan Leonard also it. had, um, sorry to interrupt, Har Harlan Leonard also had some difficulties because of his agency. He was with the MCA, which was yeah. the big booking agency at the time, but that ended up not being a good deal for him. Harlan Leonard was really an unlucky band leader. Uh, there were a number of factors that came into play that undermined his national success. When BMI was created, Broadcast Music Incorporated was created to counter ASCAP. Um, ASCAP jacked up the prices they charged for broadcasting music from their catalog to radio stations. So the radio stations formed BMI, Broadcast Music Incorporated. And band leaders switched to BMI because the radio stations were boycotting ASCAP compositions. But Harlan stayed with ASCAP rather than switching to BMI, so he wasn't getting any airplay. And also, um, MCA 
merged their African-American and white band departments, uh, save money. And African-American bands got short shrift on, on the bookings, uh, you know, where white bands would play extended engagements at hotels, maybe a week-long engagement, and then move on. African-American bands were forced to play one-night stands pretty much. And so he stuck with MCA when he should have switched agencies because he he couldn't get any gigs. Uh, Myra Taylor described a a tour of the Midwest as a starvation tour, you know, because they didn't have any work. And also, of course, World War II changed – other things that changed – the Kansas City band, band's fortune led to their downfall was Pendergast was indicted for income tax evasion in 1938, and he was sent to jail, sent to prison. And the reformers cleaned up the town, and they dried up jobs for musicians. And then on the heels of that, World War I came along in December 1941. And World War II. It, well, excuse me. Excuse me. Let me let me rephrase that. World War II came along in July of 1941, and it changed everything. Uh, you know, uh, there, there was rationing of tires and gasoline, so bands couldn't tour. Uh, a lot of the clubs closed. Uh, the, the for the war effort, there were blackouts, uh, and the draft devastated the ranks of, of, of the bands. Uh, you know, the musicians were drafted. Uh, this uh, ironically it led to a number of women band, uh, women's, all women's band that came along at the same time. But that's really, you know, what happened to Leonard and to, and to Jay McShann. Uh, you know, Jay kept going until 44, and then he was finally drafted. And I want to backtrack just a little bit and talk about one band leader we've kind of skipped over, and that's Georgie Lee, uh, the brother of Julia Lee, who goes on to become kind of a queen of the double entendre uh, jump blues song in the 40s and 50s. But from the 20s on, Georgie Lee is, like you said, Benny Moten's biggest rival, and he recorded, uh, I believe, the first version of St. James Infirmary, Infirmary Blues, which becomes an American classic. And let's hear that, and then you can talk about Georgie Lee and okay, his role. Sure. St. James Infirmary Blues by Georgie Lee and his band. Tell us a little bit about Lee and how he uh, fit into the puzzle along with Kirk and Moten and Basie and the other territorial band leaders coming out of Kansas City. Well, he was he was Moten's principal rival. Uh, he was originally from Lexington, Missouri. Uh, he started, His family moved to Kansas City. Julia, his sister, who sang songs her mother taught her not to sing, <laughs> he was born in Kansas City. And he formed the band after shortly after he was discharged from uh, World War One. And they played at Lincoln Hall and other venues in the 18th and Vine area mostly. And he, of course, started out with a trio, and, and like Moten, he grew his band. Uh, he was not a good band leader. He was overbearing. He fined 
individuals in his band, uh, musicians in his band. He would find them for infractions, showing up late or, you know, anything. Uh, he was kind of boorish. Uh, he was a cad. And he wasn't a good band leader, um, so he didn't last as long as Moten. But the advantage that Lee had over Moten was that George was a very strong vocalist, as was his sister, uh, Julie, who played piano in the band. She was a left-handed pianist and had to play a strong bass line with her left hand. And so he had that advantage of Moten early. Moten didn't have a good vocalist until Jimmy Rushing comes aboard. Uh, and so he, he he was a very flashy band leader. He, unlike Moten, who'd rather work the door, he really loved the stage. And his vocals could be heard ringing out of the window of eight, of, a, of a Lincoln Hall at 18th and Vine for blocks. He was such a strong vocalist. But since he wasn't a very good businessman, his, 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 he didn't have the longevity and, and he was also one of the first to record. He recorded for the OK label at the same time Moten did, but those records evidently were inferior because they were never released. And then he recorded for the Winston Holmes Merritt label in 1929, excuse me, 1927 for the Merritt label. And there's some pretty crude recordings, uh, but you can see why he was so popular. He's a variation on Tiger Rag, and it had a very pop sound as well as a jazz sound, too. And then in 1929, he recorded the first version of St. James Infirmary. And it had been written by a Kansas City band leader, and it was originally called Gambler's Blues, and it's based upon that whole uh, you know, English ballad theme of of death, uh, where you have this gambler uh, who is looking at his dead lover and meditates on his own mortality. And in 1929 or 28, Jesse Stone joined the Lee Band. And Jesse Stone was a great arranger, and that's what Lee never really had. So Lee polished the band. Excuse me, uh, uh, Stone. Stone polished the Lee band and rehearsed them. And they went in the studios of Brunswick and recorded St. James and Furby. It was a local hit. Uh, it sold 2,000 copies here locally, but it didn't hit nationally because of the Depression. Uh, you know, they recorded that in the fall of, of 1929, just right before the Depression. And Cab Calloway, who had been playing here at El Torreon, uh, also knew the song, and he recorded it as a ballad, too. And it, um, uh, it, it became a big hit, national hit for Cab Calloway, and kind of stole, he stole uh, Georgie Lee's fire. And it had actually been recorded before that by Louis Armstrong, Irving Mills' uh, was the one who published it, and but Louis Armstrong recorded it up tempo, and it didn't suit the, the mood of the of the piece and the lyric, so that kind of robbed Lee of of his big hit, and he built himself as a Brunswick recording artist uh, for five for six years after that. Ironically, it would be Georgie Lee that would uh, professionalize Charlie Parker because Charlie Parker joined his band in '35. And he had he he had to become a union member to join George's band because you know he had to be a union member to play Paseo Hall and the other big big venues in Kansas City. So, and then George kind of faded, but Julia Lee continued. She was known as Kansas City's sweetheart of song, and she continued uh, recording 
it, it, it was for the Capitol label, brought into it by who? Dave Dexter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she became a big hit for the Capitol Records, selling half a million copies of Snatch and Grab It without the benefit of any uh, radio play because it was a risque song, you know. Uh, so Julius becomes really the keeper of the flame of Kansas City Jazz. She's an interesting figure, too. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up Jesse Stone because I want to talk about him and Big Joe Turner and their emergence out of Kansas City and then their role going forward into uh, jump blues and rock and roll with Atlantic Records in the 40s and 50s. Well, they both they both worked here in Kansas City in the 1930s. Stone uh, was from Kansas originally, and he came to Kansas City to go to school and live with his grandmother in the 19, early 1920s. And he formed he formed a group with Coleman Hawkins here locally. It was one of Coleman's first gigs, when Coleman first picked up the tenor saxophone. And Mamie Smith came through about 1922 and played the Gaiety Theater and took Coleman and other members of the, of the, of the Stone Band with her. So Jesse reformed a group called the Blue Serenaders. And it was described as like a group of Bessie Smith. They played blue notes. And and it was, became a, one of the leading territorial bands. And they toured as far as uh, the, the California and up north, South Dakota, and then came back to Kansas City and were based out of Kansas City for a while. And, you know, Stone's one of the first really great arrangers, along, along with Eddie Durham, uh, in, the, in the territorial band tradition. And he, he brought that to Kansas City. And he, um, uh, but he was unfortunately not a good band leader, not a good business person. He was a dreamer, arranger, great writer, uh, but not a very good band leader. So the Blue Serenaders really didn't last very long. But they did make some recordings for the OK label, Boot to Boot and Starvation Blues, that, that are really classics in that tradition. Uh, and then, of course, he went to Chicago led an all-girl group, and then he settled in the early 1950s. He became an A&R man for Capitol Records. and Excuse me, Atlantic Records, not Capitol. And he uh, uh, was really the father of rock and roll. He was, you know, Big Joe Turner's big hit, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, and Flip, Flop, and Fly, and he composed for the uh, BMI label, and then Jesse Stone, as the ASCAP label. So anytime you see classics by by uh, by Calhoun, you know, recorded by the Drifters and others, he, he that was that was all about him. And he said that that he and, and Big Joe Turner were rock and rolling during the '30s down on 12th Street. So he became he's one of the fathers of rock and roll and a veteran of the uh, uh, the territorial band tradition too. And Big Joe was started out as a singing waiter in one of these uh, restaurants and bars in. Kansas City in the 18th and Vine area. He gets discovered by John Hammond, too, and goes to New York with um, the pianist Pete Johnson, I think is the name, and plays the Spiritual to Swing concert. Yeah, they were the ones that incorporated Pete Johnson and Big Joe Turner on on Vogue, incorporated Boogie Woogie into the Kansas City tradition. Uh, He was a singing bartender. He was was all about 12th Street. 12th Street was an early 
kind of like Las Vegas uh, in Kansas City, stretched a mile east of downtown. It was lined by taxi jams, joints, gambling places, and bordellos, and, and, and clubs, arena clubs on 12th Street. And that's where Joe Turner got his start as a singing bartender. And he used to hang out at a place called the Backbiters Club on Independence Avenue. And that's where he first met Pete Johnson. And they, uh, uh, it, it's kind of funny. They had a guy named Abby Price, who was the drummer, was the band leader, and he was so afraid of the gangsters on the club that he uh, carried, started carrying a gun and shot one of his toes off and couldn't play the drums anymore. So Pete Johnson took over the band, and they were they were known for their work at the Sub Sunset Club. Uh, Sunset Club was at 12th and and Woodland. Uh, it was owned by a guy named Piney Brown, who was a sporting man here in Kansas City. He ran all the number rackets and, and ran clubs and a very wealthy, well-known individual. And it was run by a guy named Piney Brown. There were two Pineys. There were Big Piney and Little Piney. They were known as Piney because they were from Piney, Piney, I think Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And so these joints didn't close, and they would attract musicians from all across the city to jam in the wee hours. And Joe Turner was a singing bartender. He'd shout the blues and serve up drinks and Pete Johnson would be radiating the 88s. And by the time the sun came up at the sunset, there'd often be as many as 15 musicians on stage jamming. And they would all come because Piney Brown did sunset because Piney Brown would feed them. You know, he was a pimp and, and a sport man too. And the musicians could eat there. Uh, he would give them money to come in, uh, you know, and so everybody wanted to be around Piney Brown, particularly Count Basie. <laughs> and so, you know, they're, they're, they're shouting, they're shouting the blues. And, and, you know, they had an outdoor, uh, uh, outdoor speaker. A lot of the clubs did in those days, but Joe Turner didn't need any, uh, any amplification to step out in the street and call his children home. Andy Kirk talked about how he uh, didn't have to go to the sunset because the sunset came to him. He lived a few blocks away, and he could hear Joe coming through his, his wall of his apartment shouting the blues <laughs> in the middle of the street. <clears throat> a very colorful tradition here. Absolutely. And and one thing that really fascinates me about Kansas City Swing in the 30s is the way that both of the major branches of African-American music in the 40s and 50s come directly out of the Kansas City Swing tradition. We already talked about the rhythm and blues and rock and roll branch with Jesse Stone and Big Joe Turner. But the other big branch comes via Jay McShann, like you said, and Charlie Parker. And let's hear early Charlie Parker with Jay McShann. This is Swingmatism. <laughs> Jay McShann's Swingmatism featuring Charlie Parker. And listening to that, it makes sense. You can hear Charlie Parker as a creature of swing, not far removed from, say, Lester Young cutting loose with Count Basie. But he goes to New York and in a very short period of time is playing a very different kind of music, bebop. You know, he'd been, he'd been playing bebop in Kansas City. Uh, the older musicians called it crazy music. 
there's a couple of recordings. One's called Honeysuckle. Uh, honey body, excuse me, it's honeysuckle rose and body and soul. It was recorded probably about 1938, and you can hear him starting to, uh, you know, develop the technique which would later become bebop. And then there's a, another unpublished recording we have in the uh, Mars Sound Archive in the John Tamino collection of him playing "I'm Getting Sentimental Over You," and this is from uh, 1940, February 1940, and he's he's a uh, He's playing bebop on that particular recording. Um, and, you know, Charlie Parker is the culmination of the Kansas City tradition. And he really learned his craft in these late night cutting contests where musicians would test each other's metal by going in and out of key, playing double time, uh, and trying to best each other. And that's where the bebop, bebop language comes out of. And he's influenced by Lester Young. Uh, you know, one of his favorite roosts was the balcony above the bandstand in the Reno Club. Uh, the next door to the Reno Club, there was a, a, a whorehouse. And so they used to, all the all the whores used to, uh, ladies of the night used to roost in the, in the in the balcony. And Charlie Parker would go up there where the where the marijuana smoke was heavy from the Basie band burning reefers on the on the bandstand below. And he, <laughs> and Lester, he would listen to Lester Young. But his, it, also his, his real musical daddy was Buster Smith, who was a member of the Blue Devils. And then, of course, the Moton Band. And then, then he would write the first great book for the Basie band uh he he in Durham and a but he he you know was was really very much influenced by Buster Smith they played at Lucille's which was on 18th street and 18th and Woodland no excuse me it's on 12th yeah 18th and Woodland and is next to the Kansas City Call and Buster Smith was was one of the first great soloists in the tradition really can't see tradition although it came out of the territorial band tradition and he and night after night they would trade licks they would go in and out of key and play double time on stage in fact kxby uh broadcast from lucille's and and jay mcshan heard uh, the broadcast one night and he thought and he went up to buster smith the next day and he said buster you played so nice last night and buster said that wasn't me i went on that was charlie parker so anything that Buster could play, Charlie could play. He was Charlie's musical father. Now, Charlie, um, you know, is associated with New York and, and Los Angeles, but he spent most of his life in Kansas City. He lived here for 21 years. He only lived to be 34 years old. So he's the culmination of the tradition, really. And I don't think Charlie, because of his habits, you know, he was a heroin addict when he was 16. Uh and, you know, an, an alcoholic, I don't think his, because his habits, I'm not sure he would have gotten out of town if he didn't, um, uh, if he hadn't been a member of the Jay Chan band. His Jay Chan really got him out of town. And, you know, Jay was a very laid back uh, band leader who tolerated Bird. Uh, Bird would not show up to the gig, you know, and goof. And he would tell Bird, go take a couple weeks off, get it out of your system and come back. Because he loved bird and he loved the way bird played and what bird brought to it and bird you know was the one that, that really led the sax section and it was a it was a band that was known for the blues recording confessing the blues hootie blues but as we heard in swingmatism which you just played it was also a very modern band that extends what basie had been doing i mean you know it it, it was a young band the oldest member was 26 years old and you know like a stone and so many of the other band leaders, 
you know, uh, Jay McShane comes out of Muskogee, Oklahoma, in the territorial band tradition, comes to Kansas City on a lark in 1936. He was on his way to Omaha to see his uncle. And he stops at the Reno Club, and uh, a bass player there said, uh, uh, you know, you don't want to go to Omaha, stay here in Kansas City, you can stay in my apartment. And so this is really where he got his start, and he brought the blues and boogie-woogie tradition from Oklahoma up here. And he starts playing at the Monroe Inn and making the rounds, and he meets Charlie Parker in front of the Barley Duke nightclub. He hears Bird on an outdoor speaker and goes in and says hi and says, man, I hope we can work together. And then Jay McShann was a very genial individual. It was easy, it was easy to get along with. And he also became connected. There was a, 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 a local business leader here I had owned Travelers Insurance named Walter Bales. And Walter Bales played four-handed piano with Basie. When Basie left town, he went to the union uh, local 627 and asked William Shaw who, who could play piano with and he sent Jamie Chan over well Bales was very connected socially so he opened the door to the white community for Jamie Chan and Jay became the band that broke the barrier to the country club plaza which is a shopping district uh, in, in, in Kansas City in midtown Kansas City of course then it was on the outskirts of town so he goes and plays at Martin's and all the wealthy people go to Martin's and so he begins to play in country clubs and he expands his band and he brings Charlie Parker into the band at Martin's in 1938 and Charlie's 18 years old <laughs> and, and a, a new father, you know. And so, uh, you know, he really brought Charlie along. And because he was a laid back band leader, it enabled Charlie the freedom to develop his voice even even more. Uh, you know, Cab Calloway, for example, didn't like jamming after hours. He hated bebop. So that kind of held Gillespie back for a while, you know, Gillespie. But, but Jay McShann, he encouraged him to go out and jam. And so he really came of age musically as a member of the Jay McShann band. And indeed it would be his big hit, his, his, his solo on Hootie Blues that would really bring him to the nation forefront for the first time when musicians heard that. It sounded so much different than other alto players that it was just, everybody's going, who's this guy? Who's Charlie Parker? You know, and, and he was also a great composer too and wrote a lot of the big hits for Jay McShann so it, 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 it's, there's that relationship that maintained. And Jay, you know, he I mean he could get along with anybody. He was very easygoing. And so he's a very popular band leader. So he played uh, Fairyland Park, Maine, the big venues here in Kansas City. And so he, and then when he left town in 41, uh, Bird was a member of the band. And that's how Bird got to New York. And, and the rest is history. And Chuck, thanks so much for coming on the show and telling us about your book, Kansas City Jazz from Ragtime to Bebop, a history co-written with Frank Driggs uh, and Chuck Haddix. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, Nate, thank you for having me on. And it's been a pleasure talking about Kansas City Jazz and, and being on your podcast. Thank you so much. It's been, I don't have many people I can talk to sometimes about this, seems like. And you've certainly, done, you've certainly done your homework and you know your stuff. And thank you very much. Well, thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Nate's guest will be Stephen Tao to talk London classic rock. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. City Jazz from Ragtime to Bebop, a History, is published by Oxford University Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.